Hi everyone, it's Lou here just giving you a quick heads up. During this episode, David and I talk about the Disability Royal Commission and I thought it was a great time to let you know that Family Advocacy have a new podcast. Family Advocacy is a New South Wales-wide disability advocacy organisation that supports families to promote and defend the rights and interests of people with developmental disability. They also facilitate and assist people to make submissions to the Disability Royal Commission. And this new podcast is called Talking Disability Royal Commission with Family Advocacy. It's a series of short episodes that will help you understand what the Disability Royal Commission does, how it will make a difference to you or a family member with disability, And the hosts, Troy and Talia, will take you through making a submission step by step with tips to help you along the way. It's a great idea to listen to this podcast to give you the tools and confidence to make your own submission. Anyone listening to this episode is likely to have information that the Disability Royal Commission want to hear from you. Please listen to the podcast or contact Family Advocacy. You can call... 02-9869-0866 if you're in New South Wales and ask to speak to Louise, that's me, or Troy and we will help you with your Disability Royal Commission submission and more information can also be found on the Family Advocacy website which is family-advocacy.com. Hi everyone, it's Lou here. Well, the year is underway and so much is happening as always. Thank you to the wonderful Patreon members who donate a small amount of cash to me each month to help me to keep this podcast going and to engage with the process of advocacy and our common mission to embrace neurodiversity at home, at school and in the workplace. You can become a Patreon member at patreon.com forward slash square peg round hole. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast, join the private group on Facebook and follow the public page on Facebook. There's also the website. On the website you can find resources, episodes, news and advocacy projects. The address for the website is squarepegroundhole.com.au. There's also a profile on Twitter. It's at peghole with of course, the word whole spelt with a W. I've also got an Instagram page at Square Peg Round Hole Podcast. So there's lots of ways you can contact and engage with the work of this podcast and the work that I'm doing that we're all doing together. And finally, I just wanted to reiterate once again that I do not represent the autistic community, the ADHD community or any group to which I do not belong. I represent parents. I'm here to facilitate others to come forward from those groups, to speak up and to assist us all to come together to advocate for improved outcomes, for inclusion, and for society to embrace neurodivergent people. So thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope you find it helpful. Thank you. Once again, I have quite a few new Patreon members to thank. Thank you so much, Natasha, Rachel, Judy, Dominica, Christina, Bernadette and Catherine for becoming Patreon members over the last couple of weeks. I really appreciate the financial support that you're giving me and it is encouraging me to keep going and keep advocating and speaking up And I hope that it encourages you to feel you have a voice through this podcast as well and that we can all come together to work towards a world where neurodivergent people are embraced, included and experience everything that everybody else gets to experience in the world and have a good life. That's what it's all about. That's what we're here for. And I really want to thank you for coming on board and helping me to do what I can to make that happen.
I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. Something very different again today. My guest is Dr. David Roy from the University of Newcastle. David wants children to love to learn so they learn to love. He has a complex and interesting career that has seen him teach drama with a drive to improve outcomes for students with disability. David is a vocal advocate for students with disability and is often writing articles and commenting in the media about the dreadful discrimination and exclusions that disadvantaged minority groups experience in school. He is a public critic of those discriminatory and exclusive practices and a great ally to students with disability. But what has that got to do with drama? David has managed to combine the two interests, and I'm really excited to hear more about this. As you will hear in this interview, David does reveal some rather alarming and concerning, but truthful and factual evidence about his own son and his own experiences. So just be prepared that you're about to hear some pretty shocking information. He stands by everything he says and has been very open and honest and I'm sure you will see the unique approach that he has to this, his obvious lived experience and trauma that he has experienced over the years influences the way he communicates about these issues and drives him forward. That's something that I can and also can't relate to. I've not been through what he has been through, but I do feel the same drive and I have that in common with him. We both have a sense of social justice and a need to put the wrongs right. I want to say enjoy this episode, but that's probably not right. It's not something we enjoy, but hopefully it is something that will motivate you to speak up if you have information to share with the disability royal commission for example this is now your chance to do so this podcast is not just about listening to people's stories it's about advocacy and our guest today is probably the most outspoken advocate i've come across so let's get motivated to make a change for the future and here is david roy Welcome to the podcast, Dr. David Roy. Hi, thanks for having me here, Louise. You're very welcome. Now, the first thing I'm going to say is we need you to speak clearly and slowly because every time I hear someone like you speak, I think of Dr. Norman Swan, who I listen to his podcast. I don't know if you're both from the same part of Scotland, but... Uh, Yes, we actually are. So uh, I think he's from the West Coast as well, but... You might have spent some time on the East Coast because there's a slight inflection. So I will speak slowly and clearly like I do to my students. Um, Excellent. So we can understand me. <laughs> so we can understand you. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, um, so is that Glasgow that you're from? It is, yes. Nearly yes. 20 years in Australia and I haven't lost my accent at all. No, you really haven't. Okay, cool. I've been to Edinburgh in the last sort of 10 years. You know, they were easier to understand, I think. They're not quite as I they, they kind strong. of go up and down a wee bit more like this. Oh. <laughs> awesome. It's an awesome accent. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Right, well, let's get going. So as you know, we have icebreaker questions that we start with. And the first one I have for you is, what's your favourite animal, David? And why is that your favourite animal? Well, I mean, obviously my favourite animal at the moment are my two dogs, 
But my whole life, the actual animal that um, I, I was fascinated by as a child, and I have books about it, uh, was the orca, commonly known as the killer whale, though actually is not a whale, is actually from the dolphin family. And I could probably bore you for several hours talking about cetaceans and why they are such an amazing animal. So yeah, it is the orca. Um, beautiful. Wow, killer whale. We haven't had that one yet. <laughs> And I've got a more serious question as the second one. If there was one thing, David, that you could change in this world, what would it be and why? Greed. I would change greed. All of our flaws as human beings stems from our greed. There's nothing wrong with liking things and wanting things, but it's when you, greed is when you, you take too much whether it be from the environment to destroy the, the rest of the climate for us or whether you take someone's land and therefore have a war. It's, it's when you take from others and when you take more than you actually need. Um, and we can always have a wee bit extra, but to the extent that it, it causes damage to others. So I guess it's that principle of when I, I die, I want people to say that he did no deliberate harm to others so I guess greed would be the thing I wish we could change um sadly it's, it's part of human nature at the moment and we haven't matured to the same degree as our technology has that's a very pertinent one and as you say it's it's happening right now as we know overseas um with the war in Ukraine that is just pure greed isn't it just pure greed and power it's pure greed it's it's just cruelty and just the stories that are coming out, um, it's going to have ramifications for the next 40 years, I think. But uh, let's see what the other nations, including our own, do about it. Yep, absolutely. Happy thoughts. You what was that? Sorry. Happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did ask the question, I guess. So, you know, got to take the answer. It is important. And this is, I guess, people who are deep thinkers and people who are really thinking about a lot of the issues we're about to discuss do care and want to explore what's really going on. I know that that's something that's affected me in the last few years. Yeah. And trying to explain it to our kids. Um, yes. And, and, and the, the kids that we work with and, and giving them a sense of, of safety there's so many things in our system don't do that. I think we will be touching on those issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, within this podcast, um, it's it's about kids for me. It's about making sure that the people that we love and the people that even that we don't know are in a better mental place and, and a place yeah. that they can grow and thrive. And, and I feel that greed just stops that. Yes, 100%. It does. So I actually don't know that much about you. I was going to ask you if you can expand a bit more on, well, we know you're Scottish, okay, so your life growing up in Scotland. Um, but basically how, I want to understand a bit more about how you found yourself doing what you're doing today and what really interests me about you is what is your connection to the square peg trying to fit into the round hole? Well, I, I, have, I guess I have always been a square peg fitting into a round hole. So... It's, it's, it's a long story. Um, I was always quirky as a kid. We now know it's because I had dyspraxia. So I actually okay. come from a lived um, experience. I actually have a diagnosis of dyspraxia and a highly suspected diagnosis of ADHD, uh, which is both a benefit and a curse within my family. Um, they love the fact that I'm always doing things. So the house gets cleaned and tidied um, or sometimes organized in such a way that I know where things are and no one else does. So I'm always busy doing lots of things. And, and I laugh about these things. Um, I'm an entertaining meal guest because you can watch me eat and watch me drop my food all around me. There's a beautiful, lovely semicircle of crumbs, no matter what it is, or try to spot the bits of food on unusual parts of my body for some. I remember as a, um, as a young student, one of my friends looking at me going, how do you have a baked bean on your shoulder? No one at this <laughs> table is eating baked beans, but you have one on your shoulder and, or watching me, you know, spill coffee out my mouth as I try to drink it. So there's that aspect of it. And I was a teacher for 17 years uh, in schools, both in Scotland and Australia. And I guess one of the most, the proudest moment I ever have was, was a kid who was in my drama class. And he was not dealing with any other subject. He was failing everything. But he took drama 
And I realized very early on that he had a challenge because he couldn't emotionally engage with the characters that he was trying to play because this kid basically had autism and it was really in the days before autism was being widely diagnosed uh, in any Western English speaking country. But using a theorist that I knew, a, a, a drama technique where you think about the physical action and it makes you represent the emotion as opposed to the other way where you feel the emotion so you can represent the action. He was able to get his year 12 drama. It was the only year 12 subject that he managed to actually get. And I always remember him. And then I was became an academic and I was involved in different things, the creative arts research. And I realised that there was a lot of kids involved in the arts who also um, had disabilities. And that made me watch what was going on in the classroom and realising there was something... I wasn't used to in Australia where there wasn't inclusion happening. That was the first point. And then, of course, I had a son who had significant disabilities, um, autism, dyspraxia, ADHD, but enhanced. I, I, I gave him the enhanced versions. And we immediately came across challenges of trying to enroll into school because before he started school, uh, we went to enroll. And we were basically told, no, he, he won't be suitable for the school. Um, part of the reason was he's really good at escaping. And the school didn't feel that they could keep him in the grounds. And this was before they'd insisted there'd be fences and gates everywhere. And we're kind of going, so you won't make adaptations for him. And then they put him into an early intervention unit. And there were some real problems within that early intervention unit, such that we had to remove him and and call for an investigation into the unit, uh, which, of course, was then the department investigated itself. And they um, said, that we've done nothing wrong. And our son was nonverbal at this time. And so we then, he then started to speak two years later, and he told us about some horrific things. The first words he was really saying was about things that happened to him because he was, like, scared of a cupboard in our, in our house. He wouldn't go into it for chocolate. And... Event and then he was having kind of a, a, a withdrawal emotional breakdown because of it. And he came out in his very limited linguistical way that he was being locked up in a, a stand-up cupboard within the school. And we then started to discover other things about them force cutting his fingernails, force feeding him. We had already seen incidents of other children being hit by the teachers. And so we put in massive complaints. It was in the news. Um we eventually were on SBS and 7.30 report and nothing was happening. And there was delays and holdups by EPAC. Um, and by if it goes for three years after the event, you can't do anything legally about it. So we ran it through to two years, 11 months, and then initiated legal proceedings against the department. At the same time, uh, my very, very passionate, intelligent stronger wife than I am, um, looked into saying, how can we make bigger changes with this and get it properly investigated? And she realised the best way to do that was through a parliamentary inquiry. So she looked into how we did it, sat down with me, and she and, uh, and I organised together um, to meet with certain politicians in New South Wales Parliament. And I apparently know how to speak. And she's quite a, a shy person, uh, personally. So I became the spokesperson more for it than her, even though she's the brains behind me. Um, and we were able to get a whole pile of parents with their stories and get some teachers with their stories. And we initiated the 2017 Parliamentary Inquiry uh, into Disability and Education, which built on the previous one from six years before. And it's ended up causing lots of changes and being quite disruptive, leading to changes with behaviour policy that we're now seeing and with restrictive practices policies. Um, the teachers who were involved in the alleged assault of my son are still in position. Really? Because the department mm. will never admit wrongdoing, even though the court case was settled. Um, I can't talk about that because, surprise, surprise, there is a um, a clause that we had to sign where it's a non-disclosure agreement. We didn't have a choice about the matter. Let, let's just say if it had gone to court, there wouldn't have been a different result other than someone being fired. But the judge would have wondered why we didn't settle. 
for the same thing. So um, that's what the legal advice we had. Remember, you go, don't go against the department when you go to court. You go against the New South Wales government, who have a slightly bottomless pit of money attached to them, unlike any of us who are just parents. So, yeah, um, that fired up the passion. And so it just led me in a very easy way to use my engagement in the creative arts and how it can support children with a disability, linking it to changing policy and melding the two together. And it kind of freaks a bit people out. But when you think about the arts are a form of communication and that the kind of communication that we do is innately from birth, in fact, from in the womb, we use the arts to communicate. And yet by the time we get to maybe primary one, we say, stop communicating that way, speak and write. And that's the only way we'll assess you. So I see the arts as a tool, both as a servant to other subjects, but to use other subjects as a servant to them, to allow people to have access to share their deep knowledge and deep understanding for, so that we can recognise, you know, like a kid may be non-verbal, that doesn't make them intellectually disabled. There's a whole different stuff going on there. And, and being an academic, I, rightly or wrongly, I'm given a higher status um, within groupings to talk so I can get a platform to speak both my own voice and also to allow other voices to come through me assisting to share their views as well. So yeah, like budget estimates, um, I'm able to give lots of politicians lots of questions and they actually get asked several times in the same budget estimate paper and they often don't even change what I sent them as a Word document, which makes me laugh, particularly when, shall we say, the head of the Department of Education hears the question and I know I've put a phrase in it to make them know who said it and you see them raise their eyebrows. An example being, why do we not have an inspectorate system in New South Wales, similar to one of the more um, collegial, collaborative forms, such as from Scotland? And I will deliberately put that in. Yeah, right. Okay. People go, oh, I know who this came from. Just, just so that I'm still. They must know. Yeah. We've got to keep the fire going. Let them know that we're not giving up, um, and we will never give up until the system changes so that all kids are included, all kids are accepted, and kids that are neurodivergent of any or any disability at all, or any actually diversity, are treated as equals, given equity, and not targeted. Sorry, I get a bit passionate, and I probably skipped off the story of my, my, my own family a little bit. You can Google it, it's all out there, um, because I guess quite emotional. So um, yes, of course. Oh, look! I don't actually. I, I'm sort of sitting here quite stunned. <laughs> you knew you were going to do that to me. Basically, uh, it came out at the same time as the cage in Canberra. I don't know if you remember that story. There was a cage in Canberra, and then there was a a three year old in a cupboard in Newcastle. I live in Newcastle, so that was oh, that story. Oh wow! Okay. Oh wow! It's all it's all making sense. My interaction with all of this started just after the parliamentary inquiry and I think that's why I've missed where you fit in and I've always wondered. But, wow, you just told me and I'm I'm actually quite stunned and um, I, I knew the day would come when somebody would, one of my guests on the podcast would tell me a story like that and I knew I know these things are going on. I hear about them every day and this is what I try and tell the department as well. I just wrote a letter this morning about something similar. So we know it's going on, but I've just never really had someone look me in the eye like that and tell me exactly what you just said. And it is very shocking, but thank you for sharing it. I know that must have been the most horrific experience of your entire life, I imagine. There's no question about it. And and it's not finished because there's the ongoing post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course. And therefore the support and medications that were needed for that. It's one of the reasons he was homeschooled. Um, he's yeah, right. only just moved into distance education now at his current age of 13. But we've been homeschooling him all the way up to that point. And again, a lot of that burden um, has been on my, my dear, beautiful wife. I'm a bit like the plumber with the leaky tap because I'm I'm only one of us can... Uh, really work when you're homeschooling and that's the the lovely thing people don't realize it's a sacrifice so therefore because I had the higher wage we thought and you've got the platform I keep going so 
she took on that responsibility and, and has done an amazing job, so much so that the people at Distance Ed are kind of going, wow, he's really good. Uh, because he's not intellectually disabled, though he does still have language challenges, uh, always has and always will be, but he's, he's just what he can do. He amazes us. One of the first things they asked him was, well, what do you like to do? And he wrote down in his kind of worksheet for them, he likes to jokeify. And immediately my wife kind of went, he's done the wrong thing. That's not a real word. And I went, oh, I've never heard of that word either. And remember, I taught drama and English. And then we looked it up and it is a word. It's a, a modern word. It means you like to to make fun with people and, and, and joke with them. He likes to. He knew the word that he likes to do, and he's always had an amazing sense of humour. Um, I guess that's one of the things that people forget about uh, autism, and uh, is that it's not that the kids don't have a, emotions. It's got they've got so many, they get overwhelmed. They they so interact with the world, and they have so much feeling and passion within the world and engagement that it becomes overwhelming, and the amygdala can cut off inside the brain, and that can shut them down into themselves. To the way we protect ourselves at Christmas time, um, trust me, I do not like Christmas shopping because it's too busy. Oh, um, yeah. That, yeah, that's not disability. That's called being human, and and so much of what we have with our kids, whether it's ADHD or autism or dyspraxia or, or dyslexia or dyscalculia, they're just a kind of a slight extension of the human condition. Uh, and I think sometimes the department wants to label human beings as having a disability because then they can get their funding, which we must remember is attached to the kid until they walk through the school gate. Then the money suddenly goes to the school who can use it in any way, shape or form they want, such as clean the mould off the demountable. And it doesn't attach to the kid anymore. And they can literally give the kid no resources. And, and yeah, you've got lots of questions about, is that, are they meant to do that? No. Would they get pulled up if caught? Yes. But there's quite often a um, don't ask, don't tell policy, I would argue within that as well. Sorry, I can go on. I could talk for hours about this. And I'm just letting you go because you're answering my questions. I don't need to ask them. You clearly have not only lived experience. I, it's a lived experience that I didn't know about, but now I see why you are the way you are. Yeah, and it's, it's why I tweet and my, my dear uh, lovely wife tweets. It's why we tweet what we do. And um, we still regularly, I mean, through the court case, we were able to get some freedom of information of stuff that we didn't know. And we discovered that initially the staff who the allegations were against were being pulled up by by senior management for you should not be doing this anymore. And things were revealed they were doing that they, they admitted and the department said, yeah, they did that, but we've warned them, warned them. That's all they get. You know, if our kids burp too loudly in a classroom, they get excluded. But hey, if a teacher punches a, a kid or slams their head against a wall, they get a warning. And we have the Freedom of Information documents that tell us this. Funnily enough, they've not released those for two years. And that's my ongoing battle just now with the department. And I'll be having another meeting in a month's time when one of them comes back from their holiday in England to say, why are you not revealing this in budget estimates? Because I'm asking it every year. So th there's a whole pile of issues. We, we discovered that the special education teacher in charge of the unit of the of the um uh full of three and four year olds it was kind of a preparation class to to prepare them with disabilities to go into a mainstream classroom um had allegations going back 10 years before we got there and the department said oh well, they're unrelated and we're kind of going it's child protection that was registered by family and community services and you didn't think that was a connection because you talked about it in your internal emails because we got the freedom of information and mr mark scott said nope we don't see a connection to that they seem to be able to talk themselves out of anything or out, you know just it's just the constant lying and manipulating and and just just it's just so exhausting and and that's one of the questions I have for you is what what do you think we can do or what is your call to action of parents to do something about this what where do you see us going to 
get make some headway. I mean, okay, we have a behaviour strategy now. It keeps getting blocked by the teachers' unions, as we know. That's just one tiny, tiny thing, reducing suspensions. Okay, fine. But as I what we've been trying to communicate is it's one thing to reduce suspensions or reduce the length of suspensions. The other thing is the push out that's happening. And you've alluded to that kind of thing, the gatekeeping and the, yep. the practices where kids are being slowly sent away and othered into segregation or into just partial enrollment. Those kinds of practices. What can we do about it, David? What do you recommend we parents do? And teachers. This is a really hard thing because you do get targeted. We we have I've been threatened at my work. I've been by department members. I've been though the department denies it because they investigated it and we've been phoned at home and and told that they're going to get social services onto it. So as soon as you speak up, they threaten you. And and people will attack you. And there's don't get me wrong, there are great people in the Department of Education. There are some great schools that are trying to support kids, but there's a lot more that aren't as well. And it's that balance. The thing that, that I guess we realise is what are we going to say to our son in 10 years' time if we didn't try and we didn't keep trying? And as draining and as tiring and as challenging for our own family relationships that this can become at times. Um if we, what do we say to him when he's older? That we gave up, we didn't defend him. The the department's really good at trying to say, listen, if, if you if you just accept, we'll give you a really good placement in a good school. That's bribery. So I'm going to turn to my son and say, hey, look, we got bribed and we accepted the bribe. Um, I can't do that. You need to speak up, and the, you're not going to hear. You're going to get flimflammed and and pushed back by the department after so much time. So keep your timelines aware. Don't do phone calls. Or if you do, you can record them because you might be threatened. So if you suspect you're going to be threatened, you're allowed to record without telling the other person. Of course, if they don't threaten you, you must delete that recording and never use it. That's just the law in New South Wales, okay? Don't worry. See, I've had to check these things. We had to record calls. Do it all in writing. If you have a meeting face-to-face, say, could you please send me a, um, a recorded minutes of the meeting with agreed points? Because they will deny if there's not a written record of it and they have to keep these written records. And have a storage device that keeps your written documents. Keep all emails, keep all documents, but contact your local politicians. doesn't matter what political party they're in. Contact your local politicians. Contact the media. Don't hide. It's challenging, it's scary, um, it's threatening. It's I don't actually enjoy it, um, to be honest, because you're traumatised afterwards. Um, but push it. The, and when you email them, include people they don't want included in the email. You know, Include your Jordan Bakers and your uh, Louise Milligans and all the rest, the education people, Caitlin Fitzsimmons, Con- Connor Duffy, all of these people, uh, Jane Hansen from news.com, in- include them and include politicians um, so that the pressure is on them, that when they respond, and what I often find is they respond back without including those people, they delete them. So I always get a reply to re-include them again. And of course, their reply is underneath. So the, the outside. Yeah, they get to see. Yeah. see the reply and, and, be, and then they also yeah. get to see that they're being excluded from emails yeah and, and and be annoying be that fly in the ointment be the disruptor but also be very careful don't make allegations you don't have the evidence for so you can say alleged assault suspected discrimination you can't say it was unless you've gone to court or there is some written document saying this was discrimination. So you've got to keep yourself safe as well. And as hard as it may be, don't get emotional. Do get sarcastic, but don't get emotional. There was one point in our case where um, they actually said in response, and they said this in the media, you know, that they spoke, they, they interviewed the children in the classroom and there was no wrongdoing. So we very publicly asked, which non-verbal child did you interview? And could we have a look at that transcript? It probably isn't very long. Because they were interviewing children who, couldn't, who didn't use words. And they then meant, oh, we made a mistake. We, we meant we interviewed some parents. <laughs> and we're like, really? It's little things like that. 
How often do you think this sort of thing, the experience you've had that's shocked me so much this morning, how often do you think this is happening around? What what do you estimate? Oh, I, I would reckon, well, I look at the Freedom of Information documents and the last one I have is from 2020. And um, that was 17 pages long of allegations of assaults against children with a disability with about eight to 10 allegations per page. So you can work out the numbers yourself, not the numbers that are stated in the budget estimates um, and how many people don't report it, how many people don't know about it. Because the thing about non-verbal children is they don't tell you. And that's why they are 10 times more likely to be assaulted. Um, It's actually more likely to happen in a segregated setting as well. So less likely in a mainstream school, more likely in a segregated setting either a unit or in a school for specific purpose. Uh, three times more likely if they're disabled, 10 times more likely if they're non-verbal disabled. That's what the, the data from Britain and, and Australia and America has told us. So yeah, I think it, it's happening a lot. Teachers are human beings and they get frustrated. That doesn't excuse it. It explains it, but it is not a justification. It is still wrong. Um, wrong, 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 wrong. I cannot emphasize that. Well, it's morally that. and ethically wrong to abuse and a everything. student. And it goes against every principle that I, as a teacher, became a teacher for and that I now inculcate into the students that I teach. So, yeah, I, is it widespread? Yeah. Um, it's widespread. I just think this is probably a good time for me to just say, um, I don't know if I told you this, but I've just recently started a new job with family advocacy and my role is advocacy engagement officer for the Disability Royal Commission. Yep. So I don't know, I assume you would have put a submission in uh, to the Royal Commission. <laughs> yes, you're nodding. Um, but I think this is a, probably a good time to say it's not too late. Um, and if anyone's listening to this and has a, had a similar experience to David, and clearly there are lots of people out there who have, it doesn't have to be physical abuse. It can be any form of neglect or anything that is that you consider to be a wrongful delivery of a service to you. Um, and so there would be lots of people listening, I know, who would qualify to put a submission in to the Disability Royal Commission, and I encourage you to do that. In New South Wales, you can contact Family Advocacy. Um, in other states, there are other organisations, but you can just contact the Disability Royal Commission themselves. And on the website, there's a, a way of filling out a form. But to be honest, there is no format that is required. Just tell your story. Um, many people find it hard to write. And what I love about Microsoft Word is there's a microphone on it. And literally, just turn it on and just close your eyes and speak and tell your story. They don't care how how good your grammar is. That's not what this is about. This is about the content. And... You might well not be called. You can ask for it to now to be kept quiet, confidential, but um, they will still look at it and it will be used as part of the build-up of evidence for things. So, yeah, the more we can do, the better. We want there to be an education hearing in New South Wales. They've had it up in Queensland. There's a whole pile of stuff about restrictive practices and exclusions that they've still not dealt with, and we don't want to run out of time. The more stories we can get in, the better. And uh, you can anonymise it if you wish. We chose to use a different name for our son in our submission because he has not given me permission to have his name out there. So I've always used a pseudonym for him so that if when he's an adult, he won't get, oh, you were, and his name be given. Um, So we're very careful about that. Yes, there's all sorts of measures that can be taken. I know at Family Advocacy they're doing video recordings, um, all sorts of different ways of putting forward that information. Um, There's private hearings as well that you can do, private submissions, or I'm not sure of the exact lingo yet. I haven't really started my job yet. But I know that it's very accessible. Um, So you literally write one paragraph and put it in and that's enough. Yep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So get... Get, please do it. Please do it because this is our chance to, you know, inform and and try and advocate for these changes to to come about, which is what we all want so much. I was kind of slightly quietly involved before it was set up, working with um, certain politicians and federal to push forward because education wasn't going to be included initially in the proposals, and we managed to get that changed, and then working a wee bit with them at the beginning to say why do you not have this and trying to push 
for the ability for there to be confidentiality, etc. Um, that took a big push and it's finally come through. So, yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you a different question now. Go for it. Anything. If, <laughs> anything. I know. I can see I can ask you anything. If you could spend one day in the job of the New South Wales Education Minister, currently we've got Sarah Mitchell sitting in that role, but if, David, if you were given that job for one day, what would you do in that one day? After donning the bulletproof vest and ensuring <laughs> that the security guards were near me, uh, because there's probably a few people would be quite happily throw me under a bus, um, what would be the first thing I'd do? Well, firstly, I'd recognise that I'm not just in charge of the Department of Education, I'm also in charge of the Catholic and the independent sector because I'm the Minister for Education, not the Minister for Public Education. And I think there's a big mm, miss point. in that. I would, if, if I, am I allowed to be there for more than one day or is it just one All day? All right, we'll let, you have a, we'll let you have a week. Yeah, because it <laughs> takes me a time to get fired all the shit teachers who assault kids. I would pass a rule that as soon as you are, have an allegation against you, you are suspended. That's the thing. They don't do that. They keep them in the classroom. There's a presumption of innocence. And I get why they're doing that. But the point is, the allegation is a threat to a child's safety. So get them out of the classroom. Keep them on pay. Put them in the administration office doing all the administration that's, that teachers are overwhelmed with. Fine by me, but keep them the hell away from children until we know what's been going on. That's the first thing I would do. Um, there's a whole pile of regional managers I would just lock in cement. I would get rid of because they are the problem. I, the uh, regional yeah. managers? Yeah. You can yeah. I, you can go to the areas and you know who they'll defend. You know where they'll be higher um, mistreatment of children with disability because the message coming down the top is, shh we're okay with it certain areas are not okay with it um and you can see that um yeah i i would rifle through that absolutely yeah and um i would also publish i'd also try to say um why do we have certain ssps our schools for special purpose segregated this is a controversial one and I have a particular viewpoint on it that you can ask me about after this, but that would be some of the things I would do. I'd also give teachers a wage rise. I, there's a whole pile of, I come from an education background, there's a whole pile of stuff I would do. I would um, make sure that every teacher in a primary school was a, a co-teacher, as in that they job shared, so that they spent half the week teaching, and then they'd transfer over to the other teacher, who would spend the other half the week, which would allow the one who was in the classroom to be outside doing all the preparation and admin stuff, which means that teacher could work from nine through to four or half eight through to four o'clock and not have to work at the weekends and not have to work at night. And I'd also shrink the class sizes down. I'd also create proper resource rooms. I would close off every timeout room there is in every school because they are misused and they are wrong places to have because they're not used for their purpose. Um, there's a whole pile of things like I could go in for hours with this one, Louise. Yeah, well, good, good. And and on the topic of teachers, um, that's a real, that's a really important topic. You are a teacher for one thing, and what we often hear is that um, there seems to be a sort of defensiveness or a miscommunication that when we are talking about some of these reforms that we want to happen, that we are on the attack of teachers or that we are criticising no. teachers. We want, how do we communicate that that is absolutely the opposite of what we want to do? The teachers' union are often saying they just want more resources but don't offer the solutions that, 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 are, uh, that align with the law, the disability discrimination laws. How can we, get, how can we remove that disconnection? Okay, so are schools underfunded? Yes. Do they need more funding? Yes. But if I go to the bank and say... I would like $10,000, please. The bank's going to turn to me and say, what for? And I'd go, ah, for me going on a holiday to Indonesia? They'd go, no, get lost. I want it for a car. Ah, right, so there'll be something that is that we can use if you can't pay back. The same way that when we go to schools and schools say we want more funding, we should be saying, what for? And can you then demonstrate how it will be used in a way that will benefit the education of kids. That's what the unions don't do. 
Do we want better resources for teachers? Yes. Do we want better support for teachers? Yes. Do we want to have the best teachers in schools for our kids? Yes. Do we want them to use the best methods to support all the kids? Yes. Do we base this on empirical evidence? Yes. Does suspension lead to better outcomes for kids? No. Does the evidence tell us that? Yes. So why make teachers' lives harder by continually suspending kids who will come back and cause further disruption because of what has happened through their suspension? Because it's created a barrier and between them and the school. What you find is kids misbehave when they have an enemy to misbehave to. So what we need to look at is saying, why are the kids behaving in a way the school doesn't see appropriate? Quite often it's because the work is not challenging enough for them because they're bored or it's too challenging for them. So they're distracting. It's all about disassociation and distracting from what's going on in the classroom. So let's find ways to engage these kids and keep them growing because they've obviously got a brain that allows them to get up to mischief. So let's harness that. When you go into young offenders institutions and you, uh, there was a woman called uh, Madeline Portwood and had uh, was looking into dyspraxia. Funny I should know about that, Mr. Dyspraxic David. Um, and she found that in young offenders institutions, boys institutions, 50% of them had dyspraxia because they weren't intellectually disabled, but they couldn't engage properly in the classroom because they would fidget, low muscle tone. They had to keep moving, weren't aware of where they were in space. Um, they were finding it hard to organize. And so their talents were used outside the school and got them into criminal trouble. It just keeps coming back to this, though, all the time. It's like we know what the answers are, but they're just not, they're just not happening. It's just asking for resources, asking for, for higher income for teachers, asking for more teachers' aids, asking for all these things. No, none of them um, are linked to what we know are the inclusive practices that can help, the trauma-enforced practices, all of those kinds of things. And one of the things that no one's picking up on is the, the teachers' union, the teachers' federation, is actually run by principals. You'll notice all the highest ups that people who do most of the, shall we say, outspoken comments against children with a disability actually have principal roles. So it's not about teachers, the Teachers Federation, it's actually teachers and principals, which is management. And that changes the whole conversation when you realise that these are the people who run schools, not wanting anything to change their life and how they run it, because they as principals want to chuck kids out to make life easier for them. So are you saying they're not on the ground? So they're not understanding these issues about well, teaching? Well, they are in the ground, but I think there's a conflict of interest. A lot of the teachers I know are a member of the union because they need insurance in case something happens in the classroom and they have an allegation against them falsely because that also can happen. So that's why they join the union, to protect themselves, not necessarily because they agree with all the policies of the union who are so busy making statements about Ukraine and other areas and, and climate change on their website, but have nothing about disability and children. Yeah, I, I must say I do notice that disconnection, that there just seems to be no um, solutions offered or um, indeed empathy towards this group of students that they are responsible for and that they you know, really should be caring about their education and their access to education. And it was the union that fought us the full time trying to set up the parliamentary inquiry as they were very busy spending weekends socialising with the then Minister for Education, Adrian Pickley, who, um, let's just say, he at one point just said, I'm not going to answer any more of your emails and then blocked me on Twitter. And then we had the parliamentary inquiry and before it actually then started having hearings, he left he left politics. There's a few interesting things happened with all that. And he knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. Was that Adrian Piccoli, did you say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have many personal opinions about him. I think I was one of the few people who wrote a negative piece about him when he left. All these other people praising him. Mine yeah. was not quite so positive. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Top for, sorry. I go off on a wee tangent with lots of things, Louise. And I hope that's <laughs> it's okay. okay. It's okay. It's good. This is good. I mean, I, now I know why you said to me, you can go off the script <laughs> because I had all these questions to ask you that were very pointed and 
direct, but now I know why you are the way you are. You're so you're so <laughs> passionate. I think no, I think I've met my match. <laughs> um, it's also probably and my wife is as equally as passionate, and she again is also a Scot. Where we're, we're, we don't really let go of things when we get better. Um, there are still things you grow up as a child knowing about the clans that hate each other from events that happened five hundred years ago. Still, um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a wee side story. My, my eldest brother, my 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 mother in Scotland um, was a Macdonald, and my eldest brother brought back a girl he was starting to date. Um, and her name, her last name was Campbell. And about, oh, I don't know, in the 1500s, uh, in Glencoe, on a stormy night, the McDonald's allowed the Campbells, a small group of Campbells, to be at their campfire to shelter um, and, and kind of have a truce. And through in the night, the Campbells slaughtered the McDonald's around that campfire. <laughs> now, the McDonald's have been doing just as bad things to the Campbells, but that's a story that goes through the generations. And when this girl came into the house and she was a Campbell. My mum refused to speak to her. Wow. Just to because she was a Campbell. Wow. Now that's all, there's so much negative about my mum. I could, I, my psychological therapy could probably come out talking about my slightly psychotic mother, uh, God rest her soul. Um, but yeah, within a week, my brother had decided this wasn't the girl for me. And I was like, as a younger kid, I must've been 14 or 15, kind of going, this is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. But there's an element of the Scottish psyche that not holds a grudge, but we don't forget. And always, you know, it's what makes Billy Connolly funny because he does the same yes, thing. Yes, yes. We love this about you guys, but it's... um. And I apologise in my passion if I've ended up speaking faster. Oh, you certainly have. I'm going to have to slow it down or something. <laughs> It's okay. I'm going to make your voice really loud so people can really hear the words. Oh, look, I don't know what else to ask you now, to be honest. Like, I've, I've never had this happen to me. Um, Do I think the New South Wales behaviour strategy will ever be implemented? That was one of the questions you wanted to ask. Yeah, Absolutely. it is, but it just seems so boring now. <laughs> I absolutely do. I think my honest belief about this, because I have spoken to Ruth Owen about it, is that they they have had to delay anyway because of the floods and because of COVID. Schools are being ravaged and teachers teachers are really struggling. I'm, again, it sounds like I'm against teachers and I've been told publicly that I hate teachers when actually, in fact, I love teachers. It's, why do you think I train people to be teachers? That's my job. However, I think it's been... I d- let's say the department has probably found it easier to have a delay because the certain unions need to be placated in some way. Um, I think they're also waiting to see what's going to happen with a federal election because that can change teaching conditions and what happens because it'll also impact about how Sarah Mitchell might be going in New South Wales, depending on how Liberals do and, and the Nationals do in New South Wales federally. But I think they will implement it. I just think it will be a slow process and I, and I just hope they implement it properly. It's when they badly implement things, that's when they fall down and the unions can then use that as a rod. But I feel really bad. I'm targeting the unions and I come from like, you know, Clydeside Red, you know, the home of, home of the trade union movement. I have been a, a member of trade unions my whole life. Interestingly, I note that the Teachers Federation is not associated to the Labour Party as a trade union. And that's because I see the Teachers Federation as quite a right-wing trade union. They use the analogy of the oxygen mask coming down in the plane, that you have to look after yourself as an adult first, so the teachers have to be feeling safe at school first before they can help the kids. No, sorry. No, schools are not there for teachers. Teachers do not have a right to teach. There is no United Nations Declaration of Human Rights about teachers. It's about children. We have schools for children. We actually have them created, actually, it was for workplaces to people who could be literate and numerate and not chop their hands off in the machines. That's a whole different issue going back 200 years. We have schools for kids. We happen to have people there who teach those kids. But sadly, the remote learning has shown us, you know what? We could probably do it without teachers. So what are teachers bringing to enhance this? And I think teachers do. I think we have a better experience with actual teachers. But they need to realise that they're not indispensable. 
and they're there for the kids first. And we've got to take Maslow's theories of, 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 of need, hierarchy of needs. And kids have to feel safe and secure and fed. Only then will they eventually be able to learn. So we've got to get that safety for kids first. And yeah, should we have CCTV in the classroom? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have it. We'd protect our $5 Big W t-shirts for sale better than we do children in the classroom. And we don't seem to have an issue with our privacy being looked at by a spotty 18-year-old in Big W when we're on CCTV camera. So why do we not trust schools to look after the video footage? Because we trust point. them with the medical details of our kids, the anaphylaxis. We trust them with the personal details that the parent of of um, student X uh, is divorcing and that's why student X is misbehaving or behaving in a different way. We trust them with that information, some of the most personal stuff that I don't even trust my government with. So why can we not trust schools to manage closed circuit TV? Of course we can. And it means that the schools have the evidence for misbehavior and the, we also have the evidence of teacher misbehavior. Totally. I think you touched on something there as well in the beginning part of the answer there to that question. Um, when you talked about the old model or the reason why we have schools, um, I had a previous guest, his name is Peter Hutton, who was on the podcast and he is a ex-principal and, and the co-founder of a group called the Future Schools Alliance. And he was talking about how we need to move away from this model of where we brought people, young kids into school just so that they could learn how to um, conform and, com- and be compliant at, with the, the old ways of looking at things, just teach them how to read. If they were good at it, then they get a job in an office. If not, they go back to the farm sort of thing. How much do you think teachers or principals or those who have a, an, have a position of power or decision-making understand that we need to move away from that old industrial model? I think, I think a lot of young teachers do. And I think there are some schools that want to challenge it, but the system doesn't let them. Or they become inculcated into the system and told, this is how you do it. And you could end up conforming. Like so many of us do in our places of employment. Um, we end up just reinforcing the very systems that we thought we could change and challenge. So, yeah. I, I, and when we look at what we're trying to measure, literacy and numeracy with NAPLAN, it's the same principle. Uh, one teacher in front of 30 kids and they tend to be in desks lined up. Yes, I know the teachers now put them into lovely groups of six, but they're still that performer teacher, the kids as the audience, being empty vessels to be downloaded into. And um, I, I just think that there's an element that needs that. You need that a bit of explicit teaching or direct instruction, as it's called. Um, and there are certain, shall we say, bloggers who just go on about that and could be argued hate the disabled. And I'm sure you've come across them. And um they don't like me and I don't like them. Um, they don't like me either, I, th- I don't think. It's okay. I th- yes. Um, and we'll just mention the, the, the Journal of Ballarat. Um, but yeah. at, at the same time, we need to be doing more than just doing literacy and numeracy. We're, we're not just giving skills for them to make money for society. We want, we want kids to become rounded human beings. Um, exactly. I would always yeah. use the phrase... Uh, and I use this in every job interview I went to. I want kids to le- to love to learn so that they can learn to love. Yes. Because then we'll get rid of that one thing. Going back to the beginning, we can get rid of greed. Because if love is involved, and I mean it in the true sense, the Greek sense, if love is involved in our actions, then you won't be greedy. Because that's not a loving action to do to other human beings. And I think it is through education and knowledge will be the great and powerful doing that. And I want kids to be able to access knowledge. So yeah, literacy is important. Numeracy is important. But I want a whole human being and I, I want I want my kids to be happy. And I want yeah. their friends to be happy and to be supportive of each other and come back to that community village. And I'm just going all kind of metaphysically philosophical to you here. And I should move up to Byron Bay and hit a wee bell. Well, Byron Bay should move to us. Oh, that potentially is the case as well. Yeah, that's right. I don't think it, it sounds all wishy-washy and philosophical, but it's actually real and it's, it's so true. How can kids learn 
to read and write if they can't even access the classroom because they feel so unsafe, they're having a meltdown and they're out on their ear. Or as soon as they do something that's individual and isn't conforming, they're immediately thrown out. Ah, oh, because you that's three weeks, that's three days in a row you didn't bring your homework. But that's because the child is not able to organise their thoughts. They can only follow the instructions. They haven't got that skill. Yeah. Because the short-term memory isn't in place. I find so many kids, neurological disorders, who have really bad immediate short-term memories. But you speak to them about something that happened five years ago, and they can they can narrow it down to probably the minute it happened, let alone the day of the week, the date of the week, and exactly the details of it, because it's in the long-term memory. And we've got to be aware of that. Those skills that those these kids have, and we've got to deal with kids as assets, not as deficits to be fixed, but as assets to be enhanced. Well, I think that is a really lovely way for us to finish a very feisty and very emotional discussion that we've had. Is there anything else that you want to say? Um, usually I actually ask my guests about mentors and books and influences. Is there anything that really like was a light bulb moment for you that you want other parents and teachers to experience? One of there's been a couple of books. There's, there was one about poetry that really about how to teach poetry that doesn't have to rhyme. That was a really important book for me as a teacher because it really made me think again about how we look at language. Um, the work of Ken Robinson, uh, particularly his book Finding Your Element, which says it, it looks for you to find that exceptional thing that lights up your life. Um, and he's he's a real sad loss to us, and it's so it's so accessible for anyone. I, I'm not someone who's a who's into kind of um academic, kind of dense, thick things, um, because I, I don't think they are accessible to a lot of people. That I've had to learn how to read them myself. Um, look, there's been so much that that people have influenced me in life, and 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 people growing up. Um, there was a guy that when I first started teaching and he was a, a principal and he just said to me, the one thing to remember, David, if nothing else, never shout at kids. Shout to get attention, but never shout at kids because they get shouted at enough. They don't need that in their life. And that's one of the things I've taken all the way through is about coming to the kids' perspective and thinking what they need. Yeah, my son says that. He hates teachers that shout at him or he he perceives they shout at him, hates that. So Gordon McCracken, wherever you are, that was a major influence on me. Though you're not, I know you're not a writer of any sort. Um, mm. I, I guess, yeah, I, I could go in for hours about books. Shakespeare, um, cool. will, make, will actually inform you and improve you as a human being uh, just because of his concepts and ideas and, and the human condition that he came across. And Star Trek, I'll give you that one. Oh, Star, Star Trek. Trek. Oh, cool. Because it's about finding a solution where people can unite together despite their differences. It's not like Star Wars, which is about just reinforcing the monarchist of the Luke, of the Skywalker family, which one hereditary family member will rule the whole world. So I love this idea of the Federation of Planets. So it's, I know that's sad, but I'm trying to make it accessible for people. And obviously the, the writings of David Roy is really good as well. <laughs> a great book called Teaching the Arts, published by Cambridge, you should read. Um, and it does have a section on supporting children with a disability in the classroom. Well, that's very, I'm sure people will be very interested to, to hear about that. I'm going to list, obviously, all of these uh, on my website and the show notes. Is there anything else? or Just try to find the joy. Find, try, try to, to find, find the joy. joy. Find the joy. Uh, you can't, I said this recently to someone, I don't forget what's happened in the past or I don't, I don't kind of ignore what's going on. But I go, what can I make an impact and a change on? And my wife taught me that. What could we change? And she realized we could start a parliamentary inquiry. So you put your energies into what you can do. And for that stuff that you can't do anything about, let it go. Let it just happen and deal with what you are. But you are capable of doing so much more. I, I was so angry at all these colleagues I know who knew exactly what was going on and they don't, and they still don't do anything about it, or they don't speak up about it because oh, I don't want to rock the boat. Oh, I might not get a research grant if I'm doing that. I was told this will damage your academic career by doing this. Well, I don't give a crap because one day I will retire and I'll still have my kids, and I'll still have my friends' kids as well kicking around. So yeah, make that difference if you can. 
I think you're a great example of that and I know that feeling too and people listening will know that feeling. That's your child. No one can tell you anything about what you can say or do or how you react to the abuse of your own child. I'm sorry. Like yourself, you've the way that you've really pushed for the rights of, of children with ADHD or ADDD as well, uh, and, and looking at the suspension and exclusion. And I know that because of our conversation together, I, I then said, I'm going to pick up on that and I will help to push this within the, because I knew I had access in budget estimates, but it's because of what you initiated as well. So, well, yeah, we're in this together. Thing, we've got to recognize that, that we all, all of us are doing little bits within that cog. And the more that we all do it, the, the, the bigger it will move and change the water direction. Well, a weird kind of analogy going off in its own little world as I do. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Well, we're doing this together and we will continue to do so. Thank you so much for such a robust and absolutely passionate discussion. That was really good. Thank you, Any, David. Anytime, Louise, whatever we can do to help each other and support and, and share our stories, that's what it's about, sharing our narratives which, which again is, is the arts. <laughs> All right, I'll sign us off from now. Thanks everybody for listening. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushell. And remember, just be nice to one another.